Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. At 9.40pm on Friday the 23rd of October 1942, the Second Battle of Al Alamein began. It started with a four-hour ground and air bombardment launched by Britain and its allies against Rommel's German forces and was followed by a wave of British infantry that rushed enemy strongpoints. The battle would ebb and flow backwards and forwards with offensive and counter-offensive for almost two weeks until November 4th. It was then that through the clouds of dust and sand that the breakout began and Rommel's forces were pushed to breaking point. I'm your host James Rogers, this is the Warfare Podcast, and to mark the 80th anniversary of the Battle of Al Alamein this month, we're joined by an old friend of the podcast, Gershom Gorenberg. Now Gershom is a columnist for the Washington Post and the author of the groundbreaking history, War of Shadows, Codebreakers, Spies and the Secret Struggle to Drive the Nazis from the Middle East. What Gershom does so well is explain just why El Alamein was a major, if not the major, turning point of the Second World War. Enjoy. Hi Gershom, welcome back to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. It's a pleasure to be back with you. Well, it is great to have you back on the podcast, especially as we're marking the 80th anniversary of the Second Battle of El Alamein. There are many, many 80th anniversaries of the Second World War this year, and that's going to carry on all the way through until 2025. So listeners are going to hear me saying 80th anniversary a lot over the next few years. But to be completely honest, I think that this is going to be one of the most important ones. Because the Second Battle of El Alamein was fought near the western frontier of Egypt between the 23rd of October and the 4th of November 42, and it was truly that climactic turning point of the North Africa campaign, and actually, you could say, a turning point of the Second World War. Do you think that's... Am I over-egging it there, Gershom? Do you think that's fair to say? Oh, certainly. El Alamein is correctly identified as one of the three great turning points of World War II, really one of the three moments that moved the war from the Allies being on the defensive to the Allies being on the offensive. The other two are the Battle of Midway, which came in May of 1942 in the Pacific and reversed the tide of the war between the Allies and Japan, and of course, Stalingrad soon after El Alamein. Those are the three fronts, the Eastern and Western Front, 
between Germany and Italy and the Allies and the Pacific Front. Let's remember that for half of World War II, the battle between Britain and then the Allies and the Axis powers of Italy and Germany took place in North Africa. There is a tendency to have a Eurocentric memory of the war and forget about that whole half of the war. But that's where the battle was fought between 1940 and through the time that the Axis was pushed out of North Africa in 1943. So it's tremendously important. And the second battle of El Alamein was the high tide or the end of the high tide of the Axis advance in Africa and the Middle East and began the great retreat that continued through Africa and on into Italy. So it's a tremendously important turning point. The Great Retreat. Yeah, I guess when you put it like that, it's, it's a pretty far retreat when you've got to go from North Africa through Italy and then back to Germany. And um, I mean, that's the whole story of the war, I guess. It's a multi-year retreat. But take us back to that moment in 1940. Am I right in thinking that when we talk about the North African theatre, we can say that it was most certainly kind of kicked off, started by Italy and their invasion of Egypt from Libya. Correct. Italy actually entered the war in June of 1940, trying to get a little bit of the action in France. At this point, Mussolini completely believed in a German victory, and he wanted to get his share of the victory and to make sure he was going to get some of the spoils. And then after the fall of France, from which Italy got actually very little, he then proceeded with his plan to reestablish the Roman Empire, which meant conquering North Africa and the Levant. And that immediately put him at odds with Britain, which was not officially the ruling power in Egypt, but Britain was certainly in the British sphere of influence. The British army was still there. In order to take Egypt, Mussolini basically had to confront the British army in Egypt. And so in September of 1940, Mussolini sends this really very large army he had in the Italian colony of Libya into Egypt, very large, very unprepared, very incapable, over the objections of his generals. The army advances 60 miles or so into Egypt. The general says, see, I've taken some of Egypt, and he stops. And then several months later, in December of 1940, the British counterattacked and drove deep into Libya. And at this point, it began to look like Italy was going to lose its entire hold in North Africa, this huge colony of Libya. And Hitler decided that that was too dangerous because that opened up the threat of a British advance from the south into Europe, just as Hitler is getting ready to invade the Soviet Union. He doesn't want this extra threat from the south. So he sends his favorite general, Erwin Rommel, to Africa with two German divisions, a force which kept growing after that. And Rommel's instructions originally were just to keep the British from advancing. But Rommel wasn't a sort of sit still, hold the line sort of guy. He had a total commitment to the idea of fast forward warfare, surprising the enemy. And so he counterattacks. And this sets off this seesaw battle for Libya that went on until May of 1942, a year and a half of back and forth battle in Libya. And Rommel makes some quite significant gains during this time. It's safe to say he puts the British on the back foot. Yeah, he actually, until 1942, until mid-1942, he actually hadn't pushed the British out of Libya. But he pushed them back a couple of times. At one point, there was the famous siege of Tobruk, which lasted for months. 
the second time he again defeated a British counterattack, and he gained this incredible reputation. There's a famous order that the British commander in Egypt in 1942, the beginning of 1942, Cloud Auchinleck gave an order, don't refer to the enemy as Rommel. You've got to refer to the enemy as the enemy or to the Axis or whatever, because you're making him into a Superman. But everybody on the British side believed that Rommel was a Superman because he kept launching these rapid advances. And Churchill talked about Rommel as being a great general. And the fact is, I think if you read Churchill closely, Churchill really wanted a daring general like Rommel and it's the world's good fortune that he didn't have one because, in fact, Rommel, my view of Rommel is that he was a compulsive gambler. And after he'd won one hand, he thought that the odds were always on his favor. And that lasted until he got a bad hand. So we do have this perception, Gershom, of Rommel as a great general. Like you say, Churchill seems to think this and the history books continue to say this. It's not only North Africa, it's also over to the Atlantic Wall as well and festering Europa and Rommel looking at the defences along there and reinforcing the line and being seen as, you know, the only person that could perhaps try and make up for these significant strategic mistakes that had happened over on the Atlantic Wall. But in reality, and this I've only learnt from your research, wasn't he not only, like you say, a compulsive gambler, but he had some kind of secret intelligence that the British most certainly didn't know he had? Correct. So let's talk about two aspects of the Rommel military myth. First of all, this, there's this whole idea of his, of, you know, he was the ultimate advocate of what became known as Blitzkrieg. Smash through the enemy, outflank the enemy, rush forward, grab ground. But as serious studies of Rommel have shown since then, as the German high command itself knew at the time, Rommel tended to ignore logistics. And if logistics are important in general in war, when you think of the desert war, where the supply lines were hundreds of miles long, by one German high command estimate, you needed 10 times as many trucks in the desert as you did, for instance, in the attack on the Soviet Union. So to ignore logistics in the desert where even the water had to be brought forward by truck was a tremendous flaw. And consistently, Rommel outran his supply lands, ultimately in a fatal fashion. The second thing was that from December of 1941 onward, Rommel was receiving superb intelligence from Cairo, from information ultimately coming from British headquarters for the Middle East in Cairo. And it turned out that that information was acquired. This only became clear after the war. What the ultimate source was that the Italians, before the United States had entered the war, had succeeded in stealing from the American embassy the code used by American military attaches they then used that code and also shared it with the Germans to decode the messages being sent by the American military attache in Cairo. And this was the American officer closest to the war and was the source of information for Washington for everything that was going on in the war, including British strategy and also even things like how well are these American weapons that we're supplying the British with? How are they working out on the battlefields? Are, are the sand filters good enough? Are the cannons good enough? All of this information is a river of information is flowing by radio from Cairo to Washington and being picked up by the Italians and Germans, intercepted, decoded, forwarded to Rommel. So the legend of Rommel was that he had a supernatural intuition of what the British were about to do. Let's not go for superstition and supernatural intuitions. He had great intelligence, and that intelligence was 
discovered via the famous breaking of the Enigma Code by Bletchley Park, by Britain's GCHQ. They discovered that the Germans were sending this information to Rommel from Berlin. They Only later did they find out that the Italians were also getting this information. They looked for the source, and they ultimately realized that it was an American source, and that source was cut off within the last week before Rommel reached El Alamein for the first time on the 1st of July, 1942. And in fact, that source had sent the attaché in Cairo, had sent a message to Washington after Rommel took Tobruk in late June of 1942. And the message said, if Rommel wants to take the Nile Valley, this is the opportunity. And Rommel gets this message and he says, I'm not listening to these orders to stop here. I'm going to rush forward and, and take Egypt. So that intelligence is what encouraged Rommel to invade Egypt, told him where he thought the British were going to mount their defense, and then it vanished. Radio silence. All of a sudden, he's not getting this information. Cloud Alkenleck, the general in charge of the Middle East, for the commanding officer of the Middle East for Britain, changes the defensive position, moves it back to this place called El Alamein, which is the narrowest spot between the coast of Egypt and something that's known as the Qatar Depression, this deep cliff-lined lowland in Egypt, which meant that at that point, Rommel can't use his classic maneuver of taking a long detour through the desert to come around the back of the enemy lines. He has to crash into the British line. This happens on July 1st of 1942. At this point, Rommel and the entire Axis leadership in Berlin and Rome are completely confident that Rommel is going to conquer Egypt and rush forward through the Middle East. And let's talk about a couple of the implications of that. One implication is that they expected to get all the way to the Iraqi oil fields. A huge strategic advantage because Germany had limited supplies of fuel. That makes perfect sense because if Rommel's running out of fuel on the battlefield, they need to get through to Iraq so that they can keep and bolster their frontline forces. Absolutely. But not only that, the access in Europe was basically dependent on oil fields in Romania, and those were limited supplies. Nobody knew in those days that Libya was floating on a sea of oil, so <laughs> that resource wasn't available to them. And so they wanted to reach Iraq. They had this dream, fantasy, plan, whatever you want to call it, that Rommel was going to reach Persia from Egypt, and meanwhile, German forces cutting down from Russia were going to invade Persia, and that they were this massive pincer movement would end the British Empire in the Middle East, and that that would allow them to connect up by sea with Japan, which they never managed to do throughout the war. So think of the strategic implications of all this. In addition to that, on the day that Rommel reached El Alamein, July 1st, 1942, the SS appointed the commander of the Einsatzkommando, the mobile genocide squad that was going to be responsible, as the SS sought, for the genocide of all the Jews in the Middle East, including 75,000 Jews in Egypt, over half a million Jews in Palestine, and populations in Syria, Lebanon, and Iraq. In other words, had Rommel managed to break through at El Alamein, it would have brought the Holocaust to the entire Middle East. So, the consequences of Rommel getting through would have been immense. Instead, Alkenlech's plan succeeded. Rommel's forces, in the first battle of El Alamein, Rommel's forces were stopped at El Alamein. And let's go back to the logistics problem. His whole plan had been based on the idea that he was going to get to the port of Alexandria. 
and that the Italian ships bringing supplies would be able to come straight to his army and bring him supplies. Instead, his army is stretched out across the width of Egypt and the width of Libya. Supplies are coming in small measure from the tiny port of Tobruk, in larger measure from Benghazi and even Tripoli, hundreds of miles. And from that moment onward, the German-Italian army at El Alamein is far beyond its supply needs, is desperately short on everything that an army needs to keep working. Now, when I started this podcast, Gershom, I said that El Alamein is an incredibly important turning point in the war. I didn't realize it was that important. And something there has just struck me. It sends a bit of a, a shiver down my spine. You say that the mobile moving death squads of the Nazis had already been deployed into North Africa. And so they must have been following up behind Rommel, kind of as drawing new lines of the Holocaust, new borders of the Holocaust, as he was making his gains. Was this already being implemented in North Africa? Okay, so first of all, just to clarify, the Einsatzkommando, the mobile genocide unit, had been appointed, and its commander went to El Alamein in July of 1942 to discuss with Rommel's staff deploying in North Africa. And at this point, Rommel was already stalled, and Rommel's chief of staff said, you know what, we're sort of stuck here for the moment. You guys deploy in Athens, and as soon as we break through, we'll call to you. So they never actually were deployed to Egypt because of the success of the British 8th Army and its commander, Auchinleck, in stopping the German and Italian army. But things were going on elsewhere in Africa that we should keep in mind when we're talking about this. By this point, for instance, Mussolini had already given orders to start sending the Jews of Libya, the small but significant Jewish community of Libya, to a concentration camp in western Libya. That plan proceeded through 1942 and was only stopped by the reversal at El Alamein, which led to the British conquest of Libya. To jump ahead here for a moment, after the final defeat at El Alamein, when Rommel retreated and the Germans made Tunisia their final redoubt in Africa, that same Einsatzkommando, that mobile genocide squad, was deployed to Tunisia and started making preparations for the murder of the Jews of Tunisia, and again, was only prevented from moving forward by the Allied victory in Tunisia. So one of the critical consequences of this entire battle for North Africa was the question of whether Germany would succeed in essentially exporting genocide to North Africa into the Middle East. And it's the Allied victories in North Africa that prevented that from happening on the same scale as in Europe. To put it differently, the borders of the Holocaust are the final line of retreat of the Allied forces. In other words, Britain was a refuge from the Holocaust because Germany did not succeed in invading Britain. It, it was stopped at the Channel. Those parts of the Soviet Union that were not overrun by the Nazis were a refuge because the Red Army succeeded in stopping the German army. And the Middle East, including Palestine, was a refuge because the British Eighth Army stopped Rommel and his German and Italian army at El Alamein. That was quite literally, and if you've been at El Alamein, it's sandy. That was quite literally the line in the sand. Hi there. I'm Don Wildman, host of the new podcast, American History Hit. 
Twice a week, I'll be exploring stories from America's past to help us understand the United States of today. Join me as I head back in time to witness Thomas Jefferson write the Declaration of Independence, head to the battlefields during the Civil War, visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with English colonists, tour Central Park before it was Central Park, and a city in Tennessee which helped build the atomic bomb. From famous battlefields to secret cities, from familiar names to lesser known events, I'll speak with leading experts from across the United States and beyond to bring American history to life. Join me every Monday and Thursday for American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's almost unbelievable, isn't it? You think about when you put those different theatres together and you draw a line around Europe and you start to see exactly where Hitler was able to perpetrate his policies of mass extermination, his genocide, and those areas which were kept as safe havens, those borders of the war that, thank goodness, of course, were able to be expanded and uh, to take over Germany within just those few years. But take us back to that moment, to that moment in 1942 when we're talking about the second battle of El Alamein. What is it that happens between the first battle and the second battle that allows the British to become in, in more of a fortuitous position than Rommel himself? Is it just simply attrition at this point? Is Rommel in a sticky, difficult situation? He can't keep getting supplies to himself, and so he just gets weaker and weaker and has to dig in and hope for the best. Well... First of all, in 2020 hindsight, but also looking at Rommel's flaws and the German flaws, the smart military move to have made after the first battle of El Alamein would have been to retreat to Libya to shorten the supply lines. But if you're working for Adolf Hitler, you don't have that option. Remember, that's a rational choice. You're talking about an irrational war to begin with. So this supply problem continues and grows. It grows in part 
because the British are also breaking the codes of the Italian Navy, which was responsible for supplying the Axis army in Africa. They know the routes of the supply ships and they know which ships are carrying fuel. And the RAF, the Royal Air Force, is attacking those ships. So that deepens the supply problem. And if you look through, as I have, the decrypted Enigma messages, which are now stored in the British National Archive, you see report after report from the Axis of we're short on fuel, we're short on food, we're short on ammunition. We've got bad food for our pilots and they can't fly too high because it's causing them indigestion and that causes pain at high altitudes. Incredible stuff. So, And the British generals know this. The second thing is that that pause allowed supplies to flow to the British army. And those supplies included not only supplies coming from Britain itself, but from the United States, including, for instance, the first 300 Sherman tanks to go into battle, which were used at the Second Battle of El Alamein, the first Allied tanks that were considered the equal of German tanks. Now, another factor that happened also is that British intelligence is getting better and better at reading more and more of the German messages. So while Rommel is operating in the dark, British headquarters knows more and more of what his plans are. In August of 1942, the beginning of August, Winston Churchill flies to Cairo to evaluate the situation. And among the things he does is he relieves Auchinleck of his command. He, I think, quite unfairly treats Auchinleck as having failed, decides to replace him in the battlefield. He eventually replaces him with Bernard Montgomery. That wasn't Churchill's first choice, but the first choice was a general who was shot down a day after being chosen and killed. So Montgomery was sent in from Britain to take his place. And there's a lot of legend around Montgomery as well that make him out to be far superior to Auchinleck. And I think that in retrospect, and as this has been studied, we also begin to get a more balanced view of that. In fact, Montgomery's plan for attack was largely developed by Auchinleck before Montgomery got there. Montgomery was, I think, in a positive sense, as cautious as Auchinleck was. He refused, he resisted Churchill's constant demands to attack more quickly. And, and that's an important point, Gershon, because we're talking about the values of leadership here and the fact that Rommel isn't able to say to Hitler, well, we need to do a tactical retreat here. You know, retreat is some of the most difficult things that you can do in battle. And it's one of the most important things that a leader, a general needs to learn to be able to do. I mean, you think back to Dunkirk, and it's something that that Allenbrook was able to master and trained for, because at some points you need to retreat to fight. And so when we look at Monty, and we start to see his leadership during this time, his ability to be able to say to Churchill, hold off, we don't want to just stroll through the devil's garden, as it was called, because Rommel had created this mass amount of defense by laying millions of mines into the desert. That ability to be able to hold off to plan and to choose your moment is absolutely vital. It is, and I think that this has significance to our day, which is to say, it's not just that Montgomery could say to Churchill, I'm not ready yet which is an incredible thing. It's also that Churchill was not an absolute dictator and did not surround himself and was not able to, because of the British political system, to surround himself with yes-men. And I think when we look at situations, for instance, like the war in Ukraine, we see how valuable 
the ability to discuss with the national leader and to resist and to say, look, this is our situation really is. That that is possibility for discussion and dissent is a strategic asset. And the British had it and the Axis obviously did not have it. There was one more thing, one respect in which I think that Rommel and Montgomery were similar. And that is that Montgomery understood that he had to make himself the general of every soldier in the army. The problem of armies, especially by the world wars, was that they were huge. And as a friend of mine, a veteran of a different army said to me once, when you're fighting, the highest officer you normally see is your company commander, right? He's your commander. He sets the tone for you. But to take forward a massive army of the kind that we're talking about in World War II, the soldiers had to relate to the general as being their commander. So, for instance, when Montgomery got to Africa, got to Egypt, he gave an order that every man in the 8th Army had to know his name by that night. And he went out to the field and he talked to the soldiers. And he did this incredible thing of, Alkenlech had given this order, don't talk about Rommel as the enemy. Monty let it be known, Montgomery let it be known that he had a portrait, a photograph of Rommel in his caravan where he lived, and that he would study this to figure out what Rommel was thinking. So he created this myth of his own ESP. Again, no ESP, he had great intelligence. But that sense of you have to project your image, you have to be a leader of the privates in the field so that they know who they're following was another strategic asset that helped Montgomery in this final battle. Let's just, again, set the context. It began on October 23rd of 1942. November 4th of 1942 is when Rommel finally ignored Hitler's instructions and retreated with really the remains of his army. And then let's add in one more factor, which is four days after that, on November 8th, 1942, British and American armies invaded from the sea in Morocco and Algeria. Vichy held Morocco and Algeria. And if we're going to talk about giant pincer movements, now you have a pincer movement which spans the entire width of Africa. From one side, the armies are coming from Morocco and Algeria toward Tunisia. From the other side, Montgomery is leading the 8th Army from Egypt through Libya into Tunisia, catching the Germans and the Italians in the middle, and eventually driving them out of Africa. Wow. I mean, that's one hell of a strategic picture. And the thing that struck me there as you were talking was just how much Monty did have a pretty good plan in place. I love this idea that, you know, step one, go around, improve the morale of your troops. It's been a hard war so far. You've got to get them thinking that we can win this. And then just making sure that you've got that superior morale, but also the superior number of men, tanks, guns, and, and aircraft ready to go. And so it really does show that, you know, preparation prevents poor performance. And it's at this point that you start to have that engagement that changes the war, don't you, Gershom? Yes. And I want to underline this point about preparation. At the point after Tobruk fell, the British in Cairo were asked to explain to the Americans why they were doing so badly. And the draft that was not sent said, we're still amateurs fighting professionals, which is to say, Germany, Nazi Germany spent the second half of the 30s preparing for war. Britain had not. The first part of World War II, Britain and afterwards when America joined the war, they were essentially catching up in learning how to fight Germany. And that really went on 
through the First Battle of El Alamein. Between the First and Second Battle, Monty put all of his units through training, rehearsing what they were going to do. Every single unit was put through training exercises. So they came into that second battle. They used the fact that Rommel was stuck to retrain, to learn the skills of war, to learn combined arms, to concentrate their artillery fire on a single point. And for instance, just a technical thing, which sounds small, but was incredible, is that if the artillery pieces were at different distances from the target to fire the precise number of seconds apart so that the shells would hit the target at the same time. That is to say, it became a more professional, skilled army in the gap between El Alamein 1 and El Alamein 2. And all of those factors contributed to this great turning of the tide. I didn't know that. That is fascinating. And also to have the capacity to be able to train and do live fire exercises because you've got the munitions to do so, something that Rommel certainly didn't have at this point. So take us through to that point of the battle how does it play out? Well, the original attack, as I said, was on the night of October 23rd, as almost always happened in the Desert War. This was the night of the full moon. Why the night of the full moon? You have enough light for your soldiers to see where they're going, but not enough light for the enemy to really see what they're doing. So consistently, major offenses were launched on the night of the full moon. The first days of the battle, the British forces did not manage to break through. They launched a second round of attack on, on November 2nd. And that's the point where Rommel says, I can't do it anymore. But my army cannot resist this. On November 3rd, he asked permission to retreat. Hitler says, no, it's all a matter of will. Typical Nazi response. And on November 4th, Rommel realizes that he's beaten and starts retreating back across the desert. A retreat which eventually they retreated not only from Egypt, but all the way across Libya to Tunisia. And the next set of battles were at the approaches to Tunisia. And if you look at a map of North Africa, it's really worth studying this from a geographical point of view, because Tunisia is like this giant finger sticking up from North Africa, from the Sahara toward Europe. Between Italy and Tunisia, it really divides the Mediterranean into two separate seas with straits between them. So Tunisia was the springboard, the route toward the southern tip of Europe, first Sicily and then Italy itself. Okay, right. So this then takes us straight into the Italian campaign, pretty much. But just before we get to there and talk about some of the legacies of this what really was a climactic battle. I just wanted to share with you a, a quote from Rommel that really puts this into perspective, just how much he was battered and bruised from the Battle of El Alamein and what the morale of the troops must have been as they went through that long slog of retreat. Because he says on November 3rd, 1942, he says the battle is going very heavily against us. We are being crushed by the enemy's weight. We are facing very difficult days, perhaps the most difficult that a man can undergo. And it doesn't get any better, does it, Gershom? No, that's exactly right. That is the admission by Rommel that his entire dream of the conquest of the Middle East has collapsed and that he has no choice but to begin this great historic retreat from Eastern North Africa and eventually from Africa itself. Rommel does manage to lead several, I don't want to go into the 
details of each one, but several holding battles in Tunisia, holding back both the American forces and the British forces, but eventually that collapsed. And in May of 1943, Rommel himself leaves North Africa. The remaining Axis forces there, a quarter of a million men, surrender and are taken prisoner by the Allied forces. And very soon after that, the invasion of Sicily and then of Italy begins. And of course, the invasion of Italy triggered Italy's surrender, which did not mean that Italy didn't have to be conquered because the Germans immediately took over the country. In fact, Rama was in charge of that operation of taking over Italy. But the long slug upward up through Italy began. And here's one little detail of that to remember because it gets overshadowed by other events. The day before D-Day was the day that Rome fell. Because everybody talks about D-Day, we tend to lose this incredibly significant date, which is the capital of one of the three Axis powers falls to the Allied forces the day before D-Day. Don't get me started on this, Gershom. Our our listeners will know that I'm sick and tired of Italy being seen as as an easy campaign and D-Day dodgers and everything else. And so much, so many important advances and gains happened during Italy that in many ways were laying the ground and tantamount to the importance of D-Day and the advances made there. But the fact that the fall of Rome happens before then, I mean, it just shows you that this was a very coordinated Allied advance that was going on and that D-Day happened at exactly the right time. I'll add to that, which was that when the United States first entered the war, the American generals, with, I think, a fair degree of overconfidence, really resisted the British idea that America should start in North Africa. They said, you have to go straight to the heart of the beast. What are you talking about, North Africa? That's just to save the British Empire. We want to invade France as soon as possible. And the British said, you guys don't know what you're up against. (laughs) You know, the British at this point have been fighting Germany for two years. They've had tremendous losses. They've retreated across Europe and across North Africa. They've taken huge losses in men. They know what it's like to fight the German army. And they think correctly, I believe, that the Americans didn't know what this was hubris on the side of the American generals. And this debate went on for the whole first half of 1942 between the generals, the political leaders, London, Washington, until at the end of July 1942, Franklin Roosevelt makes the decision that the first landings will be in North Africa instead of in Europe. And that was very important because despite everything, the Axis forces in Africa weren't as strong. And that was the bitter schooling that the Americans got in fighting before they attempted something like D-Day. That was where their learning process went on. Well, Gershon, that makes perfect sense. I mean, I'm sure there's many people that would have liked to have parachuted down onto Berlin and the Fuhrer bunker within the first few months of the war, but that's just not how war works out. And you so masterfully laid out the strategic landscape for us and just why El Alamein is so important in the history of the Second World War. Thank you so much for your time today, Gershon. Tell us, where can people read more about this history? Where can we read your work? So, first of all, my book, War of Shadows, Codebreaker Spies and the Secret Struggle to Drive the Nazis from the Middle East, tells about the intelligence battle that led up to El Alamein, that led to the victory at El Alamein, It has just come out in paperback in England and the UK. So that is a major 
source on this entire battle and the strategic consequences. There's a book by Neil Barr, which is called The Three Battles of El Alamein, Pendulum of War. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Three Battles of Ella Main, which for those who want the play-by-play of what the generals did, what each unit did, and so forth, is, I think, the best source on the battles itself well gershom thank you so much for your time we're going to put a link to your book in the show notes i've read the book i can highly recommend it it changed the way that i completely understood el alamein and the broader battles across the middle east thank you gershom and as you know you are always welcome on the warfare podcast thank you so much Thanks for listening, but before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at JamesRogersHistory, and on TikTok also at JamesRogersHistory. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.